Keith will say is that these verses are um, gospel-shaped. And what, what he means by that is that these verses in some way shine a light on a facet of the gospel. And for a church that claims that uh, we are a gospel-centered church, a gospel-centered people, we want the gospel to be at the center of what we do. And so these verses aren't just to fill your head up, but to supply you with the kind of fuel that you need to be able to live holy and obedient lives. The, the truth that God will send or cause hostility between um, mankind and Satan is a good news message. It's a good news for those of you who have lost friends and you're wondering, right now that person does not have any problem running away from God. One of the things that we can call and remember is that one thing God promises to do, he, he can and he will send a Savior who will cut off the serpent's head, stomp on the Satan's head. I sometimes call Jesus our snake-stomping Savior. Jesus, Jesus will come, and someone will come and create an environment where the snake will be destroyed. That's good news. It's good news to remember that there is hope for us. There's hope for your friends. Uh, just like last week, there was, or I guess last month, there, there's good news in that God has made a way to show his love for us by shedding his blood for us. You're wondering whether or not God loves you or not? You should remember Revelation 1, 5b to 6. All glory to him who loves you and has shed his blood for you. So when you're starting to doubt God's love, doubt God's provision for you, you can call to mind these passages that if you've put them in your heart and mind, you can beat back some of the temptations or some of the doubts that will undoubtedly come your way. Um, today, I'm going to be in the same series that Pastor Keith started a few weeks ago, taking a little break from the Doctor's Cure, uh, so that we can do The Life of a Fisherman. I've loved this series, and I think it's partly because uh, I am a fisherman. Uh, my last name's Fisher, but I actually fish. Uh, and this series makes a ton of sense to me as a bona fide fisherman. Uh, if I'm looking to catch fish, I'm concerned about two things. One, getting into position— Two, becoming a better fisherman. This is essentially what Pastor Keith has done for the past two weeks. Encourage the church that if we're going to be faithful in our mission to make disciples of all nations and go uh, into the world, we're going to have to get into position. We're going to have to venture outside of our Christian bubbles and Christian schools and Christian homes and Christian businesses and actually connect with real people. Now, you might argue in the 21st century, we don't need to actually meet people face-to-face. I can just use my iPhone. I can broadcast the message to millions of people. But we all know that spreading the gospel is more than just shouting a message into the ether. Because there are people preaching to you constantly, constantly preaching at you. And you don't listen to everybody. You listen to a few. So you've got people preaching to you about God, politics, plexus on Facebook. Do you listen to all those voices? No. No, not all of them. No, because you, you want a relationship. You want to hear somebody. And so if we're going to be faithful, we've got to get in a position. When I'm fishing, I am looking for good fishing spots all the time. Uh, up until last month, I didn't have a boat. And so every spot that I fished at, I, I was looking on Google Maps, finding where can I get to the water? Uh, does it have access? Uh, am I going to come across poison oak? Uh, yes. Uh, am I going to come across slippery rocks? Yeah, uh, I've got the scars. Am I going to cr- come across mud, snakes? I hate snakes. I think it's part of the fall. Yeah, uh, there's one spot where I came across where um, it's actually one of my favorite spots. Uh, you can walk across at one time, and it's like ankle deep. 
Um, and then uh, there are other times when you try to walk through that same area and it's chest high. Um, and so there are some inherent dangers I understand about going and finding good spots to fish, but I can tell you sometimes it's worth it. And so if you're scared about reaching out, if you're scared of finding a new circle, if you're scared, um, I'll, I'll give you a hint. Like, it, it could be painful, it could be awkward, it could be difficult, but I think if we want to be good fishermen, sometimes it's worth it. And so get into position, but be prepared. And so Keith said last week that if we want to be good at anything, if, if we care about stuff, uh, whether you're running a marathon, going on a uh, hunting trip, preparing for a concert, um, you normally prepare to do the things that matter most to you. And I prepare fishing. I am prepared uh, almost 24-7 to go fishing. I've got all of my fishing gear in the back of my truck. It's locked up. Um, but I've got all my rods. I've got all my reels. I've got lots of gear. Um, but I, I, I'm, not, I'm not just prepared like at a moment's notice, but I, I, I'm also constantly preparing this year more than any other year. Uh, I showed first service, and at first I was kind of proud, and then I thought, oh, they might think I'm a big dork. I bought a How to Fish book this year, um, Pursuing River Smallmouth Bass. Uh, why? I want to become a better fisherman, and I'm just craving. I used to hate watch, uh, watching fishing videos with my dad. He'd turn on Hank Parker and Roland Martin. Son, all I wanted to do was watch Saved by the Bell. And now, guess who is watching Roland Martin's son Scott's YouTube channel? This guy. I am watching fishing videos in my spare time online. Why? I want to be a better fisherman. And, and so I, I get prepared and I go out and I rip some lips, crank some toads, and that's what fishing's all about. But here's the thing that I, I've realized, I think probably last week, that you, you can get into position and you can be prepared, but you can't make the fish bite. Went out last Sunday, got skunked. Dad and Pop-Pop caught fish. Brandon, no fish. I was prepared. I was in a spot where people were catching fish. Couldn't make the fish bite. The thing that struck me about Pastor Keith's sermon last week, when he told the story of Howard Hendricks, Howard Hendricks' dad came to faith by some other pastor, and in the story, the, some other pastor ended up leading Howard Hendricks' father to Christ. And what is uh, amazing to me about that story is that if anybody was in a good position to lead Howard Hendricks' father to Christ, it was Howard Hendricks, the son. Lots of time. Lots of good positioning. And if anybody was as well prepared, or was prepared, no one was as prepared as Howard Hendricks. None of you will ever be as smart as Howard Hendricks or as better a Bible teacher, more thorough a theologian than Howard Hendricks. And he couldn't bring his father to faith. Which is why I think that today's message um, is important. Uh, the title of today uh, is to depend on prayer. And so I'm going to pray for us uh, before we launch into God's word um, that he would move in ways that would be beneficial for us in this time. So would you join me in pray? Father, I do ask that your spirit would come upon us uh, to open eyes, open ears, open hearts to be able to receive your message of truth. Lord, I'm confident that your word is... Um, active and helpful to us. And I pray, Lord, that you would illuminate the text, the truth, in ways that would 
Cause us to become more of the people you desire us to be. God, I want Keystone to be a place of prayer. Depends on prayer, especially when it comes to evangelism. And Lord, one of my fears is that evangelism and prayer are two deficiencies of Keystone. And God, I pray that you would use this small amount of time to, to light, a, light a spark that might be kindled, that it might link up with other truths, other fuel from our past and our understanding of the scriptures, and that you would allow Keystone to burn with a greater passion and a greater intensity and a greater brightness, that others might come to see the gospel as good news and put their faith in Jesus as their Savior, and that we would see the kingdom of Christ advance because we are now in position and prepared and depending on prayer uh, to see the world saved. Lord, those are big prayers, and I pray that you would do it in our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. You can open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 20. The passage here is a familiar one for some of you. might not be as familiar to others. I don't think I've ever preached a sermon out of the Chronicles, uh, either one or two. Uh, Old Testament section here, uh, there are going to be some names I can't pronounce, and we'll just try to get past that. Um, And uh, what I'll do is I'll read just a little chunk here, and we'll talk about it, another chunk, talk about it, another chunk, talk about it. Uh, But passage here begins in verse 1. After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites, and with them some of the Meunites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea. And behold, they are in Hazazan Tamar, that is, En Gedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. And all the cities of Judah came to seek the Lord. So just pause here for a minute. The scene, um, we've got the nation of Israel. Right now he's talking about Judah, king of that region in Judah, God's people. King Jehoshaphat is now very afraid because there are lots of people coming to wage war against him and against the nation of Judah. The Ammonites and the Moabites, um, you might have heard of before. The Meunites, I had not heard of before not a descendant of the Mennonites, in case you were wondering. Um, Moabites and Ammonites um, are actually descendants of Lot, Moab and Ammon. Um, he had, well, you can look up the story on your own. Um, they're descendants of his. And then um, the Meunites are descendants of Esau. Fun fact. When, when you come across these names, you can do your own research. You have access. Uh, you don't need to be a, a Bible theologian to learn who the Meunites, the Ammonites, and the whatever ites are, um, just you know, Google it. And there are some good resources online that you can use. You've got study Bibles. Sometimes it's helpful to know the context of, okay, so these guys are coming. Why is that a big deal? Well, the, the 
fact of the matter is that when, when God called the nation of Israel to come into the promised land uh, to wipe out its inhabitants, the enemies of God, there were a couple groups that God spared. The Moabites and the Ammonites are two groups in particular that God said, uh, Moses, when you come across, and Joshua, when you lead them into the promised land, don't, 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 don't destroy the Moabites and the Ammonites. Um, in some ways, they are from the same line as Abraham, connected to it anyway. And so God spares them. But now this nation that God had spared is now coming against Jehoshaphat. And we learn a little bit about him. He is scared. And when Jehoshaphat is scared, what does he do? Comes and prays. So we pick it up here. Um, Jehoshaphat ends up praying in verse 5. Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, here's his prayer, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you. For your name is in this house, and we cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now, behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of us by coming to drive us, oh, I'm sorry, uh, came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy, behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you had given us to inherit. O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Now, I said last time that I preached, I think you can learn a lot by looking at the way that someone prays. You get a picture into their theology, the way that they view God, what they think God is able to do and will do. Now, you get a, a look into their value system based on uh, how, how they pray, what, like the intensity, the urgency to which they're praying. And so what I see when I see Jehoshaphat's prayer I, I see a man who, because he's simply crying out, he's the king. He has insane power. He can tell anyone to go do anything, and they will do it. And he's saying, as the king, I'm powerless here. There, there is a greater army coming against me than I have. And so prayer, in some ways, expresses your dependency when, when you call out to God for something, what you're doing in that moment is you're saying, I can't do it. I need, I need outside assistance. I need, to, I need someone to do what I cannot do. And Jehoshaphat's prayer is, is a, he's, this is a prayer of humility. He's calling out, God, you, I, I might rule Judah, but you rule the heavens. In your hand are all kingdoms. He's acknowledging that God is more powerful than he is. And he describes the fact that 
they trust him to execute justice. And they trust him because God has shown himself faithful. God, we saw you drive out the inhabitants of this land. We saw how you were faithful to, your, to our father Abraham and made good on your promises in the past. We trust that you're going to continue to make good on your promises in the future. He says, God, we're your people. We're going to be here. And whether judgment comes, sword comes, pestilence comes, famine comes, we're, we're going to be here. We're, gonna, we're still going to call you God, regardless of what happens. But we don't know what to do. We don't know what to do here. But our eyes are on you. I love that last line. I don't know how many times I've prayed a prayer like that. You've probably prayed prayers like that. You look in this situation, and you're like, mm, I do not know what to do here. And so you pray a short little prayer, maybe just those few sentences. God, I don't know what to do here, but I'm trusting you. I've got my eyes on you. And so I, I, like, I, like that, I like that Jehoshaphat gives us a picture into this world. And then God ends up answering that prayer, verse 13. God doesn't always answer this clearly or, uh, clearly or this precisely, um, but man, this was, this was a, a, a nice moment for Jehoshaphat. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord in verse 13 with their little ones, uh, their wives, and their children. Everyone's gathered together. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, and the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jael, son of Mathaniah, a Levite of the son of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. And he said, speaking for God, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid. And do not be dismayed at this great horde. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid, and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. Ah, that, I would love to get that kind of clarity uh, when I'm praying, God, I don't know what to do. And then uh, comes in, someone speaks and says, Brandon, here's what you should do. I'm like, oh gosh, finally, an, an answer to prayer. And it's a beautiful scene because the prophet ends up saying to the people, Joshua, I know you're afraid, but don't be afraid any longer. Don't be dismayed. You're looking over this great horde. Don't worry about it. And he gives a reason why he shouldn't worry. The battle belongs to the Lord, Jehoshaphat. The battle belongs to the Lord. The Lord will go out and fight. He says, you won't actually need to fight in this battle. You won't actually need to fight in this battle. If you continue reading on, you'll, you'll realize the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Meunites are destroyed, and Israel doesn't lift a sword. How does that happen? You can read about it. All right? It's in your Bibles. Um, spoiler alert. Um, well, no, I won't. God has done stuff like this before. And, and so I would encourage you to read it and understand that sometimes what seems impossible is possible with God. 
Because th- this, okay, you will, you will have victory tomorrow. You won't need to do anything. Huh? I don't understand how that's possible. And then God shows you how it's possible. Don't let what seems impossible rule out what you think can happen. And, and so in this passage, um, the, the prophet says, don't be afraid. Go down up against them. Those are like fighting words. Someone's going to throw some hands here. But it, actually, you won't need to because you won't need to fight. Go down against them. Stand firm. Don't move. And just watch salvation come. And I'd love to be able to say, and those are my words for you to all of your prayers. Don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. Just stand firm and trust that the battle belongs to the Lord. The, the tough part about that is we, don't, we can't always take every passage of Scripture uh, and every promise of Scripture and say, oh, that applies to me. That applies to me. Jeremiah 29, 11 applies to me. It might not. Right? God might have been speaking to a particular group, a particular person at a particular time, and it has, has zero to say about you. But that said, there are times where it seems like God is saying the same thing as a refrain over his people. Over and over and over again, there are certain passages, certain phrases that God is constantly reminding his people. And if we count ourselves as God's people, we should start to see, God, are you speaking to me about my situation and about this thing? Test it. Ask the Spirit to give you clarity on whether uh, he's, he's telling you what you need to do. And what I want to show you is that there are passages in the scriptures where God says the same thing to different groups of people that this prophet says to Jehoshaphat. goes all the way back into um, Exodus. Exodus uh, 13, I think. 14. Exodus 14. Moses is uh, before the nation uh, of Israel. They have just come out of Egypt, and they're like, uh-oh, Egyptians are coming. And uh, Moses speaks for God as he says to uh, the Egyptians, or sorry, as he says to his people, the Israelites, Israelites, don't be afraid. Just stand still and watch the Lord rescue you today. The Egyptians you see today will never be seen again. The Lord himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. Don't be afraid. The Lord himself will fight for you. There's a similar passage uh, when David and Goliath are fighting. Oh, actually, let's do Deuteronomy. Um, Moses is now leading the people into the, the promised land, about ready to hand leadership over to Joshua. And as they are on the brink of defeating all of the inhabitants in the promised land, Moses says to his people, speaking for God, when you go out to fight your enemies and you face horses and chariots and an army greater than your own, do not be afraid. The Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, is with you. When you prepare for battle, the priest must come forward to speak to the troops. He will say to them, listen to me, all you men of Israel, do not be afraid as you go out to fight your enemies today. Do not lose heart or panic or tremble before them. For the Lord, your God, is going with you. He will fight for you against your enemies. And he will give you victory. He said, David said the same thing as he's speaking on behalf of uh, God in front of the nation of Israel and particularly his enemy at that moment in 1 Samuel 17. David says to Goliath's face, which I know you have a version of David and Goliath in your head, um, but this is not like the storybook version of it. Listen to what he says. Today, the Lord will conquer you. Today, the Lord will conquer you. And I will kill you and cut off your head. 
And then I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people, but not with sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to us. I love the confidence of David in that moment. There are lots of other passages. Uh, I'd encourage you to maybe look at them. Uh, flash the, flash, just flash the uh, reference real quick. Uh, Proverbs 21, 31. Hold on to that one. I actually, I use that one all the time. Uh, I come back to that promise. When we did the writing on the, the standing on the word thing where we wrote uh, Bible passages all over uh, the floor before we put the carpet over top, uh, I put this passage right here. Proverbs 21, 31. It's underneath the carpet. I can't see it. I know it's there, but it says this. The horse is made ready for the day of battle. But victory belongs to the Lord. I prepare, uh, I preach, I get the horse ready for battle, um, but I have zero confidence in my ability to do what I want to see happen. Um, My confidence is that victory, what happens on Sunday mornings, what happens in ministry, victory belongs to the Lord. I said, there are other passages. Uh, Go ahead, show them real quick. Uh, 2 Kings 6, so similar. Uh, uh, King in the uh, Assyrian king, just show them their face. Hezekiah does it in front of the Syrian king. Uh, let's do the one um, in the New Testament where Jesus is the one who's ending up uh, speaking for us. When he calls his disciples to go out into the world to make disciples, Jesus says something that, in my opinion, sounds very similar to what the prophet spoke to, to Jehoshaphat. Uh, Jesus speaks and he says, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these, thing, uh, teach these new disciples to obey all the commands that I have given you. And be sure of this. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Even when you find yourself up against uh, uh, rulers who will demand a testimony and you're scared, uh, in Mark chapter 13, I think, um, Jesus gives these words to his disciples. You will stand trial before governors and kings because you are my followers, but this will be your opportunity to tell them about me. For the good news must be preached to all the nations, but when you are arrested and stand trial, don't worry. Don't fear. Fear not. Don't be dismayed. Don't worry in advance about what you are to say. Just say what God tells you at the moment. For what's the truth here? It is not you who will be speaking, but the Holy Spirit. There's a a refrain throughout these passages, something that's going on, that when it comes to God's mission and God's battles, the battle belongs to the Lord. That's the truth. If you want to know why you should depend on prayer for evangelism, you should know that we are not battling against flesh and blood but against the rulers and authorities in this cosmic, this is a spiritual type battle. You're coming at spiritual battles with sticks and spears. You're bringing a knife to a gunfight. We're talking about something that is beyond your control, something that you are powerless to defeat. The reason you have to depend on prayer is because this is the God's battle. The battle belongs to the Lord. He will fight for you. He will be with you. The victory that comes will be his. Now, this does not excuse you from the work of evangelism because God has still called you and commissioned you into his army to go out into the world to preach the message of truth. Like, that's your job. 
at Keystone, we don't have a, a theology where we think we just need to bring in someone who's really good at preaching the gospel, bring them up in front of 500 people, and let him do his thing. And we think the scriptures say that if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, you need to be a disciple who makes disciples, that every person is an evangelist, someone who's able to spread the gospel around. And so rather than having one preach to 500, we want to have a thousand people at Keystone who are preaching to 10, 20, 50,000 people. I think the message spreads. That's what we saw in the New Testament. Uh, we saw the church spread quickly, not because one guy was really good at it, because lots of people were fairly good at it. They were in a good position. They were prepared, and, and, and it worked. God worked. And so I want to give you three reasons that, um, why you should pray and what the three reasons why, or three things that I think should help you to pray when it comes to evangelism. The first is this. God is on a mission to save the lost. God is on a mission to save the lost. And one of the reasons Jesus came is to seek and save the lost. There is good news that we are not left to our reckless estate, but God has sent a Savior to bring us into salvation. That's a a central truth of why we should pray. We should pray because God is saving people, and he has called us to join him on his mission. And if you find yourself in a part of a mission where you don't feel like I'm able to do it, uh, don't feel like you're well-equipped, don't feel like you're the best man for the job, you're going to be asking for a lot of help. And as a Christian— I want to reflect the same kind of passion, same kind of urgency, same kind of purpose that my God has. What's, what's God's purpose for this world? He's, he's coming to see. One of the things we know that he's doing is he's coming to seek and save the lost. If that's important to God, I want it to be important to me. And so prayer is one of the ways that I can come before him and say, God, I know you are doing this. I want to help. Help me to know how to help. God, I know you are doing this. I want to pray to that end. Pray along the will of God. And so one of the things that I think could help us to pray and why we should pray is because God is on a mission to save. And the second reason I think uh, we should pray and what I hope will encourage us to pray is that eternal life and death are at stake. Eternal life and death are at stake. And Keystone, we do believe that. We believe in an eternal heaven and an eternal hell. We believe that believers will spend eternity in God's presence and join him for all that he is. Uh, heaven, we've all tasted a sense of the goodness of God. You, you have a particular understanding of the, the good news that it is to be united with God, that at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. But you have no clue what it means to find yourself in heaven. Heaven is so much, ugh, I hate when there's language that says, and this will be just like heaven for eternity. Just singing and sitting and listening to some guy talk. It'll be nothing like that. If your view of heaven is small, why would you ever want to convince someone to go there? And, and so what, I, well, eternal life, it, this is a big deal that's at stake. It's better than what we think it is. And on, on the flip side, We do believe that unbelievers will spend eternity separated from God, no longer in his presence, and that will be hell. And you all know to some degree what hell feels like. A small picture of hell is, is what you experience when you feel the pain of sin. You feel the pain of heartbreak. When you feel the pain of 
someone betraying you. You have a glimpse of what that kind of pain feels like. Imagine that multiplied out a thousand times a thousand to, to fully be separate. You've seen the effects of your sin and the kind of destruction and death and decay and disappointment that it can bring. Hell is infinitely worse than the small sliver of pain that you've experienced. And so one of the things that should cause us to pray is that it's something very important. I don't know why. Sometimes I feel like I'm a better evangelist for Carson Wentz than I am for Jesus Christ, and I don't even care about football. <laughs> I care zero about football. And for some reason, I'm, I'm more concerned about talking about how great the Eagles quarterback is. I don't even know what I'm talking about. Isn't it silly that we can make big things from small things, and meanwhile, the most important things just slip our minds, slip our grasp. And so one of the reasons I think we should pray and should compel us to pray uh, is that eternal life and death are in the balance. And the last one, uh, reason why to pray, is to admit, I am powerless to save anyone. I am powerless to save anyone. I find that my prayer life grows as my illusion of control shrinks. I find that I end up praying more when I realize I can't do something. If, if I think I can do something, I'm not praying about it. If something isn't a problem for me, I'm not praying about it. But if I find myself in a situation where I can't do anything about it, if I understand the whole time I wasn't in, really in my control, if I understand that I am powerless, I'm going to seek help. And so when it comes to our mission, we need to understand salvation does not come through information. None of you were saved because someone presented you with all of the information that you needed, all of the logic, all of the evidence, and only after that did you say, hmm, makes sense to me. I'm going to now believe that Jesus is Lord and Savior. And the reason I say that is because that's not the picture that salvation is di uh, di displayed as in the, the Bible. I just got done teaching the doctrine of salvation down in Costa Rica. And one, our whole class uh, on t uh, the second day is spent exposing the before and after picture to describe who were we apart from Christ? What was our situation apart from Christ? Were we saved because we were smart enough or good enough? We weren't. What were we saved from? Where were we beforehand? The Bible says we were dead in our sins. We were enemies of God. We were aliens and strangers of God. We were blind to our own sin and God's glory. We couldn't hear the message. We needed to be born again because we were spiritually dead. You can't do that. You can't call someone to be spiritually born again. That's what you want to happen, right? That's what you want to happen when you're praying for someone's salvation. You want someone who is running far from God to stop in their tracks and turn and go the other way, put their faith in Jesus Christ, and be saved. And you can't do that. Parents, you know you can't do that. You don't have the power to change your kid's mind. If they have set in their mind to believe something, what can you do? You can get in the position. You can provide all of the preparation to give them good instruction. But ultimately, it isn't your call what they do. In some ways, what we're asking for when we pray, God, I need you to do what I know I cannot do. And frankly, I think some of the reasons we don't pray is because these things aren't a priority for us. We think, well, I'm not going to pray, or it's not even, well, frankly, we probably don't pray about evangelism because it's not something that's on our minds all the time.
It might not be on our minds all the time because we don't grasp that God is on a mission to save. We don't, we don't pray about evangelism or even think about evangelism because we don't really, if we're pushed on it, we don't really think that heaven is something all that desirous and hell is all that bad or real. We, we haven't grasped the realities that would cause us to pray. And so what I want to do to end today is I want to I provide um, 10 examples of things that you can be praying for. Uh, there's no magic to these 10. Uh, could have been a list of 30. Uh, all I did is I just kind of went through the scriptures and picked out what are some of the verses uh, that shape the way that I think about prayer and pray for people. The Bible's full of metaphors and examples, doctrinal truths. Um, the first few of these uh, are geared, <laughs> ironically, so that you would pray to pray. <laughs> you follow me on that? Um, if I think that prayer is uh, a difficulty in my life, one of the things that I pray for is that, God, you would help me to be a better prayer. And so my prayers is for, my prayers for prayer. Um, so what would lead us into prayer? Uh, I've got 10 points. First one, one of the things that you can do is you can pray that you'd be captivated by the glory of the grace of God. That you would be captivated. I think, Brandon, how in the world, why would, why would praying something like that benefit evangelism? Because I think that as you yourself see and savor the glory of God, you will be more excited for others to see it. Because the things that you love, you praise. And you have zero problem talking about the things you love with other people. And so... If, if, if we're going to depend on prayer, one of the things that I think will lead us to pray more is for you to love what God has done. Understand, well, uh, my next one is pray that you'd understand the manifold blessings of the gospel, both to save and to shape. That you would understand the manifold blessings. And what I mean by that is, do you know how good it is to be saved? Do you know how good the good news is? Do you grasp what God had to do to save you? Do you understand what your estate was before Christ? Do you understand how great your estate is after Christ? Because if you don't understand how bad things were or how good things are, you're not going to be a good spokesperson for the gospel. And you're certainly not going to make um, uh, evangelism an important part of your life. And therefore, you won't pray for it. If we're going to pray for evangelism, I think that you should pray that you would understand the beauty of the gospel. That you'd be able to articulate the beauty of the gospel. Because if you can't understand, if you don't understand what God did to save you, I I understand how it would be a little intimidating to then have to tell someone else what God has done to save them. You follow me on that? Like, if you don't understand, I, I, understand, I, I get why you would feel uncomfortable telling someone else, because you don't really know if you know yourself. Pray that God would help you to understand what God has done to save you and what God is doing to save you. Pray that God would show you how the gospel is not just saving you from the penalty of sin, but saving you presently from the power of sin. What difference does the gospel have in shaping the way that you live? How is, how is your faith helping you to live in this world? If you can't articulate that, if you can't say that just to yourself, 
I understand how it would be difficult to go out and do that to others because you're not really sure why Christ makes a difference anyway. And so maybe even before we actually do evangelism, we, we should spend some time praying that God would help us to see his glory, understand his grace, be blown away by what God has done and what God is currently doing. And I think that those, if we prayed for those things, I think we might become better prayers. But you can also pray for some additional things. You can pray that uh, your witness would adorn the gospel and be a fragrance of life. By the way, these passages that I'm listing here, uh, these are the texts in which I get the general idea about how to pray these particular prayers. Pray that your witness would adorn the gospel. So as you're concerned about the gospel going forth and advancing, you can pray to that end. God, I ask that you would help me to live a life so attractive to my friends and family that they would be drawn into wanting to know more about Christ. I pray that I would live a countercultural lifestyle in ways that would be attractive so that people might want to say, how do you endure that? How do you go through that? I love the way that you did this. I love the way that you extended grace here and that, that your witness would cause others to see your good deeds and then glorify, not you, not praise you for your good deeds, but praise your Father who's in heaven. So you can be praying that God would adorn the gospel, that as we leave these walls, pray that you might have the fragrance of Christ on you. As you walk past, as you interact, as you speak, as you work, as you play, that you might be wafting the fragrance of Christ as you walk around. Now, I understand that the same passage there, some are going to smell that fragrance and be attracted to it. It's a fragrance of life. Some are going to smell it and find it a stench of death. You don't decide who chooses to find it smelling good or who think it stinks. You're just called to be the fragrance. And so uh, pray that your witness would uh, adorn the gospel. Pray, too, that you'd have opportunities to share the mystery of the gospel with others. This one in particular, uh, I pray because Paul prayed it. Paul's, the, the passage there in Colossians, Paul is actually praying, hey, church in Colossia, um, can you pray for me that I would have opportunities to share the mystery of the gospel? pray that I might have the opportunity to be able to speak. And I, I pray that prayer lots of other times. Uh, if, I, if I know that I have a difficult conversation to have with somebody, or I, I want to talk to somebody about somebody, uh, talk to somebody about something that I know is difficult, and I don't look forward to that conversation, sometimes I pray, God, would you just provide an open door, an open window, something that it, it's not just me coming up and like saying it to their face and then walking away. Like I, wanted to, I, I want somebody to not just hear it, but listen to it. And so God, would you create the opportunity, the environment for me to be able to, to share? And so you can do that with, your, with evangelism. If you have somebody who you're praying for and who you would love to see saved, one of the things that you've been praying for and depend on prayer to do is pray that God would align the circumstances so that you'd have the opportunity to speak. And then likewise, pray that you'd have the boldness to open your mouth to share the gospel. And I pray that one as well because Paul prayed the exact same thing. We think the Apostle Paul, whoa, the Apostle Paul, he was awesome. He's never ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. He even wrote it down in a verse. But the Apostle Paul sometimes got scared. And so he encouraged his friends who he was writing to in Ephesus. Guys, I need you to pray for me. I'm in prison 
Pray that I'd have the opportunity to speak, but pray that I might have the boldness to speak as I know I ought to speak. That to me is, it's not, I can relate. Because you might recognize I've got the opportunity, there it is. It's still hard to walk into it, isn't it? One of the things that can allow you to do that, then you're not even thinking about it, is that you're praying on the front end, God, give me the boldness that when the opportunity arises, I walk right into it. Those are five prayers um, that I think will help you uh, in your evangelism. But here are five more prayers that I think uh, we should be considering uh, as uh, related to evangelism. Pray for additional evangelists. The harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. So Lord, send people out into your harvest. Uh, Pastor Keith talked about that as he's talking about sending missionaries around the globe. Ask that God would send missionaries around the globe. Ask that God would send ministers to serve in our local areas here. Pray that, that the person that you're praying for would have other people flanking them, surrounding them, that this person would just get all kinds of battle from the Lord, um, all kinds of gospel messages. Pray for additional evangelists. Pray for salvation for all different types of people. So maybe you have a certain groups of people that you pray for, probably friends, family that you know. Um, you can expand that. Uh, second, or sorry, First Timothy 2 ends up giving us the, the indication that God desires all types of people to be saved. And then he lists off people in high position, kings, governors. And, and so pray, pray for the salvation of our politicians, of your bosses, of your superintendent, of your teachers, of people who are in high position. But I, I'm going to say pray for all different types of people because I also want you to be praying for people that you don't think can be saved. I know you probably wouldn't say that. P- people who you think, they have no interest in it. People who you think are too committed to their own worldview. Remember the gospel that you were saved by grace. You weren't saved because you were a good candidate, that you were smart enough or from a good enough family or um, well-behaved enough. God, God saved you by grace. And so the gospel should lead us to pray for the salvation of all different types of people, having confidence that God can save all, and he will save all types of people. Pray that unbelievers would see their need for a savior. This is a tricky one because in some ways what we're asking for is that God would crush their safe, their self-salvation project. Pray that others would see their need for a savior. There are a lot of people who don't think they need saving. Either life's going well for them or they don't understand what sin is in their uh, spiritual realm, and so they don't see a need to be saved. Pray that God would expose their need for salvation. And that might mean praying that people experience the pain of their sin. They might see the destruction of their sin. There's a world that is hurt and hopeless, and we have a message for them. And I think it's in those moments where they're ready to receive because they're looking for hope. They're looking for healing And so we can pray that others who are living apart from God might find that living apart from God is not as meaningful, not as purposeful, not as secure as they might think. Pray that sin would be exposed for its nastiness as it is. Two more. Um, Pray that God would change their hearts. So the Bible is full of illustrations of what God is doing in the work of salvation. And one of the illustrations that he uses here in Ezekiel is that God gives us a new heart. He replaces a heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh. And, and so you can use these metaphors and analogies to help guide your prayer life. God, I pray that you would, 
give them a new heart, that they might see you as glorious and receive you into their lives. And the next one is very similar to it um, in Matthew, uh, 2 Corinthians, sorry. Uh, Pray that God would open the eyes of the blind to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus. This illustration here, the, the language that's used in the Bible to describe what salvation looks like is that the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the mind of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus. And so one of the things that you can do is you can pray, God, people need to see how good news, there is good news in Jesus. People need to see it. And right now, they're blind to it. God, take the blinders off. Open their eyes to it. Put people next to them where when their eyes are open, the thing that they see is glory. And when they see the glory of the Lord, they are transformed. Those are ways that you can guide your prayer. There are lots of different ones. Um, I would encourage you um, to consider what are the scripture passages. Let the the gospel shape your prayers for evangelism. Um, But and and once you do that, you start to see it kind of everywhere. So I'll close here. Uh, Two weeks ago, three weeks ago, I was down the Outer Banks with my family: Afton, uh, Lauren, uh, my parents, mom and dad. brother-in-law, AJ, and two nephews, uh, James and Zuri. It's the first time uh, we've all been together on a family vacation for a week since I think I was in high school, and certainly the first time since uh, James and Zuri have come along. Uh, James is like 18 months. Uh, Zuri's about six. Um, it was a blast. Uh, lots of fun playing on the beach. Um, James was probably more fun than Zuri. Zuri, at the time, couldn't crawl. uh, While we were down there, he started to crawl and started to move around. But James, like, he's able to run around. And uh, Lauren, um, being a good mom that she is, was teaching James how to play in the ocean, learned how to say the word ocean, and he's saying ocean, ocean. And uh, so he just loves playing in the water. And, um, well, I think there's, there's, there's pictures. There he is. Oh, I know. Melt your heart. And so he's just running around. Uh, his mom's taking pictures. Uh, it's Uncle B up in the corner there, running around, playing in the water as well. And uh, there was a particular scene that happened during this time where, uh, uh, as James and I are playing in the waves, uh, Lauren says in a, a voice that only really like a mother can really say, James, Brandon, grab James. And uh, here, there was, a big, there was a big wave coming. Not like, a, not like a big, big wave. Not like a tsunami. Like, mama bears can be a little overprotective. Um, but whatever. <laughs> it was a big wave. And so I, I reached out. I grabbed James. And it was a big wave. It, like, it knocked me down on my knees, skinned up my knees. But I, I grabbed James. I jerked him out of the way. I grabbed his wrist. And, just, uh, and so I'm on my knees holding him out of the water uh, like this. Lauren did tell me later on, Brandon, you don't, you don't jerk babies and toddlers around by just their elbow. I'm like, all right, lesson learned. Uh, put him down. Uh, the, we, we cleaned up. The, the water had like washed away our sandcastles and toys and uh, chairs. And so we gathered our things. Went about. It's not a big deal. It was not whatever. But as I thought about it later on, uh, it, became, it, it took on a whole new kind of meaning. Uh, because I, I, I asked one simple question. Why did Lauren call out to me? Why did Lauren call out to me? I mean, she yelled out James. But why did she say Brandon grabbed James? If you're a parent, you know, like, kids don't always listen. Um, and, and so kids don't always listen. You can't always reason with kids. Like, Lauren, <laughs> Lauren didn't yell James and then explain to James, 
James, the ocean is coming and, and wave dynamics and uh, waves are, uh, there's, there's so many kilograms of water in uh, a wave and you only weigh this much. And she didn't try to reason with him. And you might say, well, Brandon, look how little his legs are. <laughs> there's a big wave coming. He's not going to be able to outrun a wave. I mean, what is he, like a foot and a half tall? Like, why did, he, why did Lauren call out to me? Because James is deaf. And even if he was obedient enough, and even if he was capable of reasoning, and even if he was capable of running, James couldn't hear. James, James didn't know that a wave was coming. And Lauren was powerless. And when I think about how James is just lifted out of the water, and I think about how I was saved, I feel like I was a lot like James. I feel like I was ignorant. I feel like I didn't know the dangers that stood before me. I didn't understand what would happen if I continued to play in the water. I didn't understand, and I didn't see, but ultimately, I didn't hear until the Lord, in his grace, came to me and gave me ears to hear, gave me eyes to see, pulled me out when I wasn't even able to run. And so, when it comes to evangelism and salvation, I pray because I know that God is able to fight that battle. Let me pray for us. Father God, I ask that by your spirit you would bring salvation to the lost world. God, I, I, I want Keystone to commit to you in prayer. I want Keystone to pray for lost people. I want Keystone to pray for people specifically by name. I want unbelievers at Keystone to see salvation. I want you to unveil the nastiness of sin and reveal your abounding grace for us. God, I want you to reveal how satisfying you are and how good it is to know that our sins have been forgiven and washed away. God, I pray that you'd shine a light on how glorious you are, that we might pray for gospel waves of advocates to go out into our neighborhoods. That you'd provide Keystone with the opportunities to present the good news that the penalty of our sin has been washed away. That the power of sin in our lives is being washed away. And that, Lord, one day we will experience a life where there is no more presence of sin at all. And that that would be a message that we understand in such deep and profound ways that with a sense of urgency, we would move out in the world to speak your good news. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.